Pace Line is supported by LEL Cycling. The coast is calling. LEL's shore collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LEL products are crafted in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now, on to the show. From Red Kite Prayer, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Celine Yeager, and with me is my co-host, Patrick Brady. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. And how is it fitting in your life right now, Patrick? How goes uh, it? Well, except for the ticks, just fine. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you guys had ticks out there like we do. I thought that was a, that was an East Coast problem. Well, we I mean, we have ticks. I'm not going to compare West Coast to East Coast. You probably got it worse than we do. Uh, I'm well, then the disease is named after Lyme, after all, which hails yeah. from Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. But you can get it in California. My my son did a couple of years ago. Uh, Fair. We Fair. caught it very, very early. But yeah, he had a bullseye on his belly. Uh, but I mean, well, as I texted you, you know, I, I get home. So the, the friend of mine I was riding with pulled two off her. She pulled the first one off. I pulled the second one off. Those had both bitten uh, managed to get the head out. Uh, <laughs> then she tells me that like when she was in the shower later, she pulled one out of her hair. I took my shower, <laughs> you know, looked at myself, sudged myself up, you know, was super thorough, dry off, get dressed, sit down at the desk. And there's one crawling up my forearm. Uh, and it's like, how does it, you know, that guy was resourceful. I got to give him I've a certain amount of credit. He's now swimming his way down my sink, but you know, such as life smashed into little bits. No, no, I figured no. he was going to drown soon enough. Uh, mm, I smashed them to tiny little bits before I dispose of them yeah. just for good measure. Yeah. I, I, I support that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, you know, that, hey, yeah, it's summer. that was mountain biking. Did you see yeah. those ticks on you while you were out there? Oh, hell or was no. it what, once, once the ride was done? Yeah. 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 You know, um, but man, it's summer. It's beautiful. You know, we're getting a little fog out here. Life is good. All right. Yeah. Just, How about you? Things are good. We're uh, we got a lot. It's it's very uh, it's extremely stormy this week on the whole East, East yeah. Coast. It's yeah, it's just insane. Like it'll be beautiful. And then you'll look out and it'll be like, oh, that's a river falling from the sky, um, <laughs> you know, and then it'll be beautiful. <laughs> you'll be like, all right. So I've just been getting up like at five, five thirty and riding super early uh, before whatever's rolling in rolls through. It feels a little bit like Floridian living right now, but it's supposed <laughs> it's supposed to finally blow out and and get kind of nice for the weekend. So, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I've been helping the Ram media team, you know, the race. Oh, that's America. right. That's and right. I've been catching. Where are the they now? That, uh, well, it depends on who you're talking. Uh, you know, if well, you're of course, if you're Christoph Strasser. Uh, oh, the he's Austrian, doing it? Yeah. Well, I mean, he's already yeah. won it at this point. He's kicking up oh, okay. with his leg. You know, he's in a, in a <laughs> chase lounge somewhere, you know, eating Bahama, uh, drinking Bahama Mamas or something. Uh, he's done. Uh, meanwhile, the women's race, which is really primarily what I'm covering, it's fascinating. Just so cool. The lead keeps changing. Last hmm. I checked, the two, the two leading women, there was only 11 miles between the two of them. 11 miles, 11, After 11. 2,500 miles of, of racing. Oh 11 my miles. Lord. I could come down to a sprint finish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that's insane. I mean, that's one that's, nap apart. Oh my God. That's insane. That's nothing. Yeah. That is. Yeah. Nothing. And then the women, Where, in, I mean, are they in this, in this weather pattern? Cause uh -huh. it's, it's pretty, it's pretty broad and it's aggressive. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Last I knew they were still in Indiana, not yet into Ohio. Um, wow. Yeah. And then the, the women in third and fourth places, um, they have a similar battle going on, going on, I don't know, 60 miles back or something. I forget. Uh, wow. but yeah, they were separated by like 10 miles. Um, it's, That's crazy. it's amazing. So close. It's the women's race is so cool. Uh, I'm so glad that I'm having the opportunity to cover it and, you know, help, uh, help them with it. I, I've got this ringside seat to, 
what may be one of the coolest races that's going to happen in cycling all year. I'm just that's, thrilled. That's cool. That's yeah. cool. That's uh, yeah. I will. I will. I will stay posted. Alrighty. Um, right on. Well, before I get going, we have a uh, we have a listener question that cool. I thought was a pretty good one. Yeah, that I not that they all aren't good, but this one this one intrigued me. So, and I don't have the gentleman's name, so forgive me. But it says, "Great podcast, love listening." I have. Uh, I'm wondering if you can talk about how to bike through difficult times, and and he gets a little specific here. I have had two events recently where a mechanical or my nutrition hydration plan got way off, and I had no power left. It left me trying to figure out mentally why I was out there. They were both a hundred mile gravel events that I ended up cutting short. It's hard to leave my family behind to achieve goals of just finishing a tough event and then have a miserable time while doing it. It's supposed to be fun, even if it's suffering, but in a good way. These recently, these recently were suffering, but not in a fun way. How do I get my head out of the misery and into a good place while suffering? Advice? <laughs> so, yeah, the yeah, there's kind of a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah. So I I totally get that. And, you know, as I mentioned, when I was going into some of my stuff, winging it a little bit early on that I, I had no desire to suffer in a bad way. You yeah. know, I think we all know what that means. You know, we all accept that fun type two kind of suffering, but mm-hmm. the type one suffering is not fun. It's, you know, it's just like when you're like, this is. And, well, he said it. you know, I was wondering yeah. why I was out here. That's as yeah, existential D- as anything gets in cycling. Yeah. Yeah. D- and, and pulling the plug on a major event that you've prepared for is a huge drag. So you are allowed to have yourself a pity party, you know, especially like if there's a mechanical issue yeah. that really blows uh, nutrition, hydration. We've all been there. You know, sometimes I think that can even be harder to swallow because you, you kind of feel some measure of responsibility, responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Responsibility for yeah. that. Um, you know, but it happens, all that stuff happens. Even if you prepare, we all know that that stuff happens. Uh, so, you know what, honestly, I thought about it and I think the only answer here is to try to view all of this stuff. Uh, these, cause these gravel events are long, they're long that by nature, they're, they're most, even the shorter ones are long, <laughs> yeah. um, that, that you need to. And this comes from a very goal oriented person. You need to be more process oriented. I think you need to view the training and the event through a process oriented lens. And by that, I mean, focus more on what you're getting out of all the training rides and the process of training for these events. You know, surely you must have had a really great ride or a few great rides or minor events along the way that fill you with satisfaction and keep you coming back. You know, like, or you wouldn't be here like that. That's just the way the sport is. Yeah. Uh, you know, those those moments, those events, those times are not lost because your goal event went sideways. You know, that stuff still matters. You still had it. You still learned and grew. Um, you know, I think then you also have to a couple things. And I, and I don't know if you do prepare for things that might go wrong. But I always in my mind before going somewhere like a dirty Kansas or someplace like, OK, what are the things that really might go wrong with a dirty Kansas? You know what might go wrong. Your tires might get slashed, right? You might end up with some real serious mechanical issues and you might botch your nutrition. You know, those things could happen. Right. Yeah. So you sort of have to play out the scenarios in your mind like, OK, I get out there. X, Y or Z happens. What am I going to do? Yeah. You know, just so that's. So that's sort of an automatic thought process. Um, and then I think you really do have to make peace with the fact that things may not go the way you hope, plan, or envision. You know, I mean, it's like you have learned <laughs> out in the what? prairie. I mean, yeah, what? like that you've been writing about. Yeah, you, you know, you have this thing in your mind and you're like, hmm. And in your case, it ended up being a positive, all said yeah. and done. You know, in his case, it's definitely not. Yeah. But at, no matter what, you have to just, reconcile that in your head like i'm gonna get out there and do my best but a deer might run out in front of me and take out my front wheel and the whole day might be done in the first 10 miles Woo! yeah that's terrible but you know it's just um on a final note i know nothing about this person's preparation so this may or may not apply but i think it's something that i want to address because it's something i see an awful lot in people going out to gravel events and that's when you are preparing for a big goal event I think it's really important to do everything you can to do at least 
one training day more if you can where you really simulate that event set up your bike how you're going to set it up eat and drink the way you plan to eat and drink rest or don't rest along the way the way you plan to do that ride the pace you plan to ride out there you know ride similar terrain time of day like if you're going to know you're going to be out in the heat get yourself out there in the heat get used to it um you know because i see so often things go sideways because people don't do any of that they do they do their big rides but they stop at stores and such along the ways it's a big difference when you when you when you rack your bike and walk around a store and grab a Coke and like all of a sudden it's 20 minutes and you've been resting and you get back out. That's way different than grabbing your stuff at an aid station and keeping going mm-hmm. after probably riding yeah. a little faster than you were planning on riding or have been training for. No, right? that like, doesn't happen. No, all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah, it just yeah. really adds up. And at a long <laughs> event, it makes a difference. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you it's easy to sort of dismiss that in your mind. And for a three hour thing, sure, whatever. But when you double that, triple it, it makes a huge, it's, it's huge. It, it, yeah. it, be, it becomes a difference between finishing and DNFing sometimes, I think, having that preparation. Um, you know, and also, I, I, see, I see people, you have all the gear you need, but you haven't necessarily tried it. I just got a call today from someone who was on their way to Michigan for that coast to coast race I did last year. Yeah. And they haven't tried using their navigation on their GPS yet. <gasps> it's new. Mm. <laughs> I Patrick, I remember when I was there last year, I was literally helping people figure out how to upload the course and where then to find it on their device and turn it on and get it rolling at eight o'clock at night before the event. Well, at least it was and the night before and not eight o'clock before a nine o'clock start. It's 213 miles across the state. You know, so remove any unknowns that you can. Yeah. Train like you're going to race, enjoy the process, and then make peace, whatever outcome ends up unfolding. That would be my bottom line advice, you know, for this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I fully support that. Um, I really do. You know. When I was in high school, I had uh, a math tutor um, who taught me that when I was working through the solution to an equation to see if I had, if I basically had solved it correctly, to plug in two completely, if it was, if it had multiple uh, variables, plug in two completely ridiculous variables, like huge numbers or tiny little numbers. And that way you, you could often kind of ascertain if you were headed in the right direction before you'd fully finished solving the thing, you know, mm-hmm. just by using extremes. And so to do a similar sort of thought process here. So what's the best thing that happens to us when we're riding a bike, a flow state. Okay. What is a flow state? You're completely immersed in the moment to your point about trying to enjoy the process rather than just the goal. If you're chasing the moment, if you're chasing the here and now, that's setting you on a course for flow. Right. You're you're in the present. You're immersed. And, you know, if we want to talk about it in terms of Zen mind and, you know, enjoying the journey, not the destination, um, that feeds into what you're talking about as well. And it was kind of remarkable for me to learn that, oh, I've kind of always been wired that way. You mm-hmm. can you can hand me all sorts of wonderful goals and it won't make all that much difference in what I'm doing. Um, if the ride is no fun, it's no fun. If the ride is fun, it's great. If I get to a point like, oh, I don't know, say 120 miles into dirty Kansas and I realize, <laughs> holy crap, the, the path that I am on is not going to get me to the finish. You know, then it's time to take stock. And so the one real thing I would add that you haven't already said is that at the point someone recognizes the day isn't going according to plan, Mm -hmm. you don't have to quit right then and there. Just just back off. Find a way to give yourself a break. If you have to wait a few miles until you get to the next aid station or if you find a big oak tree, whatever it is. The moment you recognize that your current course of action is not going to result in a finish, be nice to yourself. 
pull mm. over, find an yep. opportunity to regroup because so much can happen. Take it, taking a half hour off the bike totally. to do yep. some fueling, to do some hydration, to get caught up in that regard, to let your muscles recover some, a lot can change in a half hour off the bike. Oh, dude, totally. And that reminds me of a conversation I had with Alan Lim, you know, the, yeah. the scratch guy. Yeah. He, he was saying that a lot of the ultra runners that he works with have taken to actually sitting down and having lunch. Like, because they actually they finish, they finish faster than if they try to, you know, scurry, scurry, scurry and like shove food in their face along like a hundred mile run. Yeah. They just actually like, he's like, and their body cools down, their thoughts regroup, their re- their little reset and then they go about their way you know like that there's there's a lot especially when you're doing long stuff you know obviously if it's a 50 mile ride whatever but like if you're doing something really long like there's it that time that you take might actually be less than you end up losing if you don't do it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it, it's remarkable how that can play out Um, yeah but you know even beyond okay suppose for a second that there is no resetting of your aerobic system and you don't get back on the bike and ride two miles per hour faster. Suppose that you get back on the bike and you're riding at exactly the same pace you were riding before. Just the change in your attitude from having had that opportunity for, for recovery can change completely your outlook on whatever the next, you know, 40, 60, 120 miles could be. And yeah. I think, I think it's easy to underestimate how just pulling over can be a really wonderful thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. I'd agree with that. And part of it is just, you know, letting go of the ego. So if you're listening, well, (laughs) (laughs) hope that helps next time. Let us know. Go team. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I following that up, I have a short poll uh, this week of my own. I have, I have vacations on my mind because I'm finally actually taking one. Um, I, 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 well, I travel a lot, as you yeah. know, you know, I do stuff and I take a lot of fun trips. No, no shortage of fun trips. But over the past 10 or 15 years, nearly all of them have been either racing or some work involved. You know, I've not done a vacation that did not have one of those two things mm-hmm. involved with it. Um, you know, so I'm pretty determined we're going to, you know, leave on Saturday. I'm pretty determined. No work. You know, it's Saturday towards to Thursday. I'm already like, oh, maybe I'll just work on the plane. I'm really trying to not do that. I'm really trying to fully reset myself. Um, What's interesting, though, is I've been thinking about this is though, even though I'm not racing and I'm not, you know, doing any writing work, I am still going to be riding a bike. Uh, We're going to Hood River, Oregon to stay with a couple friends, one of whom has a mountain bike touring company. And uh, so we're riding mountain bikes. Yeah. For four days out in Hood River, which I have not been. I've been to Oregon a couple of times, but I've not been to that area. So I'm uh-huh. super excited. We're hoping to get around Mount St. Helens, too, which would be uh, very, very exciting. Uh, and it occurred to me as I thought further that I have not taken any sort of vacation or any of these other trips in the past 20 years that has not involved riding a bicycle. like downsides well that's yeah i don't know i like i sometimes i like get a little too introspection about these things so i was like okay i know plenty of people even those who love cycling who will deliberately take vacations and don't that don't involve riding or they take a break and when i think about what i want to do in my free time riding a bike is pretty much what i want to do in my free time i I might want to ride it somewhere different you know in somewhere (laughs) whatever but you know, and I confess that sometimes I'm like, life would be easier if you were a runner, you know, because you could just put a pair of shoes in a bag and call it a day. But but I really that is, I, you know, I, I think am I a one dimensional person? Should I be stopping and not? I don't know. Do you have to, I, I should just stop thinking. I see this is what happens when I'm going up. My brain just takes over and starts doing other things. But, you know, I'm going to send me. you <laughs> I'm going to send you an Amazon Alexa. To just record everything you're saying as you walk around your place. And <laughs> I want it sent back here. <laughs> My Amazon yes, is Alexa that your Alexa? That is, <laughs> that is awesome. I do have an Alexa. She's in the kitchen, but that is so great. She's like, how can I help you? What would, what would the two of you like? <laughs> anyway. 
Um, oh my. <laughs> I love it. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not going to edit that out. <laughs> no, that's too good. That's really good. I, you know, so when I was a kid, my parents got the New Yorker magazine. And every now and then there would be a cartoon in there that they would mm-hmm. just think was so riotously funny that they had to cut it out and they would tape it up on the inside of the kitchen cabinets. Mm-hmm. And we had this assortment of cartoons that many of which I remember to this day. Well, there was one that, and I'm not really sure why it appealed to them, but it was a, a George Booth cartoon and it's the house you know, uh, out on Long Island, facing the ocean, you know, facing Long Island Sound. And uh, the the long-suffering wife is standing in the doorway. Her husband, the writer, is seated at a table on the porch with his typewriter. And surrounding them are like 50 dogs. And he's okay. just sitting there kind of staring. And she says, write about dogs. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> the uh, the the idea being, you know, write what you know. Right, right. And yeah, there's something to be said for going deep on something, for really knowing it intimately. Yeah. I completely accept that there are people out there who need a break from the bike. There are also those of us who when we need a break, we need the bike. Right. And I take Breaks from certain kind of riding, but that those are, I'm still on a bike taking a break from cycling. <laughs> you know what I, Yeah, you know what I mean. I think my case was anyway. better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, that's, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I suspect that it's just that I found something like, it's probably a problem to be, to be happy about because I found something that I want to do. I was like, You know, know, bottom line is if you go on vacation and you have a great time and you come home refreshed, what else was it supposed to accomplish? I got nothing to that mission accomplished. Yep. Well done. (laughs) We all look forward to stories next week. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, so my pull this week um, involves a little interview. A couple of years oh, ago, okay. a then new bike company introduced uh, a Kickstarter um, for a bike called the SpeedX Leopard. Uh, if you recall this, you may also recall that it was the largest Kickstarter in history. Um, I found the bike and the company, hmm, let's call it irksome, because their pitch was that classic bike companies don't understand bikes. We do. We'll show you <laughs> how to do a bike. We are way smarter. And I just, I find that really irritating as if all these people who've spent decades in the bike industry are just clueless rubes or something. Right. Um, so they did that. They got their bike out. It had the special integrated computer in the stem, blah, 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 blah. Um, and their next move was beyond unlikely. They moved into the bike share space in China. Um, and I don't, I don't want to spoil the story or anything, but, and then everything went to hell. Uh, I followed the story for a while. We talked about it a little bit, uh, here on the pace line previously. And honestly, at a certain point, I lost interest. Well, Ian Trelore over at cycling temp, cycling mm-hmm. tips spent several months chasing the story this spring and has produced a very thoroughly researched piece about just what went down. I did a little Skype interview with him to get the story in broad strokes. Ian Trelor, man, thank you so much for joining me on the Pace Line. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, you're in Australia? Yeah, that's right. I'm in Melbourne. Okay. Um, And we're talking because you've done a piece that, quite frankly, I'm a little envious of. Uh, You've done a a pretty deep dive on the whole SpeedX, shall we call it an implosion? (laughs) <laughs> I think an implosion is a pretty uh, accurate description for what happened there. Um, I, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a bit of a monster, that story. Yeah. I mean, I followed it back when, you know, the f- first when the Kickstarter launched and I looked at it and I talked with colleagues about it. And 
my initial reaction was not to be emotional about it, but I was a little incensed. I really get tired of people outside of the bike industry or seemingly outside of the bike industry coming in and going, Oh, you guys don't know what you're doing. We're going to fix your industry for you. Uh, we're, we're way smarter than all these people who've been working in this industry for decades. Uh, hang on. We'll show you how it's done. And they certainly seemed that, but your reporting suggests that that was not the case at all. Yeah, I think uh, not necessarily. In the beginning, they started off as a, a tech startup and they, they probably came into it with different motivations and uh, different financial ideas to what many of the established bike industry brands would come in and maybe with less passion and a slightly more um, financially driven motive for being in the industry. But it, it wasn't just a, a guy with an internet account and a Kickstarter. It was a team of 70 dedicated people working on the brand towards the end. They had engineers. They were developing their own power meter. Uh, they were building wow. frames with really reputable manufacturers. It, it wasn't just cheap OEM stuff. It, mm -hmm. it was it, it was made with some of the best frame manufacturers in the industry. So the fact that they were able to develop quite quickly from from a first bike that was almost a bit of a joke into something that was probably on its way to being pretty pretty substantial. Uh, it, it kind of paints their entire story in a bit of a different light for me. Huh? So at what point did you think, okay, I'm going to chase the story now. I mean, cause it was a, it was a curiosity for a while. Um, you know, it, yeah. the dive that you did obviously took some real time to do all the research. When was, what was the tipping point and how did it come? For sure. I, I started working on the story in February um, and I, I kind of went into it just with an idle question of, hey, what happened to that Speedex brand? I, I <laughs> remembered them. It had been a couple of years since I'd seen anything about them and they were absolutely everywhere for a while and then they seemed to disappear. So that was how the story started. And to be honest, when I when I started looking into it, I thought this is probably going to be, you know, 500, 1,000 word little curiosity on the site, people will be like, ah, oh, okay, that's cool and move on. But it didn't take long before it started unfolding in all of these really unexpected directions. Um, and I, I think the point that I started realizing that the, uh, that the story was bigger than, than what I thought it was, was when SpeedX expanded into the bike share space. Right. Why don't you paint a quick, simple portrait of what happened in the bike share uh, when they when they did that? And, you know, so for people who only knew about the SpeedX Leopard, um, you know, just a, a quick portrait of, of what they did there and what what ultimately happened. So late 2016, uh, SpeedX was on its way to being established, although they were still shipping out the, their bike. Mm -hmm. And they were under pressure from venture capitals and from all of these companies that had given them funding to try and develop quicker than, than what a, a natural growth would be for a, a company just in the cycling space. At that time, bike share was, was starting to boom in China, especially dockless bike share. So companies like Ofo and Mobike very quickly went from pretty small beginnings to being enormous. So Mobike was valued at $3 billion US. Uh, by 2017 and and ofo similar kind of scale so those two big brands kind of established a precedent that there was going to be a lot of money or potential money to be made in in bike share so with with about 10 million dollars of kickstarter and and crowdfunding backing speedx was quite well placed to be able to move into that space but the the way that the Dock share, the dockless bike share worked was that it was all about scale and it was about getting scale really quickly. So within a month of launching, Blue Gogo had 70,000 bikes across three cities. And according to an interview with the CEO at the time, they were, they were churning out 10,000 bikes a day just trying to get scale. How, so how the, many factories do you have to have under contract to be able to produce that many? Yeah, exactly. I, I believe that they had six factories working. 
and and that's just Blue Go Go. So there's there's 30 or 50 other bike share companies also trying to get similar scale at the same time. So there's this enormous bubble that's inflating. Speedex, uh, sorry, Blue Go Go at their peak had 20 million users in China, 800,000 bikes. So they they were very rapidly expanding and and trying to gain market share. And I think ultimately that was one of the factors that led to their downfall. Um, so one of the really interesting and sort of unexpected implications of bike share, which I, I hadn't really considered, but kind of makes sense when you think about it, was the implications on the cycling industry in China. So mm-hmm. as as bike share was booming, the bike market halved in, in just a quarter of 2017. The first quarter of 2017, 50% of all of the bike shops in Beijing went out of business. And that's a what? city of 21 million people. Half of them overnight. Yeah. Yeah. In wow. three months, all gone. Um, so the, the market forces at play here are, are huge. And, and Blue Go-Go's and SpeedX's story is just intricately tied up in, in this, this web. But I think ultimately the thing that led to the company's downfall, and, and this was another point where I was like, okay, we've, we've got a story on our hands, was when on the eve of the Tiananmen Square Massacre anniversary, uh, Blue Go-Go ran this really ill-advised marketing promotion. Tone deaf? Yeah, pretty tone deaf. I, th- I guess you could say that. So um, for some background in China, Tiananmen Square is this intensely politicized space. It's heavily censored. People don't talk about Tiananmen Square. And a lot of the younger generation aren't even aware of anything that existed because it's just been written out of the history books. On June 3rd, 2017, Blue Go ran a promotion where all of all the little icons of bikes in their apps were replaced with tanks and screenshots began to circulate on Chinese social media of tanks marching in this neat row towards Tiananmen Square. It's uh, just mind-boggling to think about it. And that that was something that um, brought the, the Chinese government down on them. The secret police turned up at the company headquarters. Uh, the round of investment that they were about to get just fell over virtually overnight. And then whilst they were still desperately trying to gain scale and and operate in the in the bike share industry they were just burning through all of this money and and that was what ultimately brought them undone so the question i have is more and more it seems like in the tech space here in the u.s and you know other locations around the world it seems like particularly in this uh gig economy and you know all the sharing stuff there seems like there's an urge among the C-suite people to not just become a player, but to assert absolute dominance, try to actually do a Facebook and, and become a near monopoly in a, in a manner of speaking. Are, were forces like that at work in this situation where everybody is thinking it's uh, winner take all? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, the the nature of the industry and Chinese startups is that results are expected. So rather than allowing a bike company to grow from humble sort of origins to being a giant or a Merida or a company of that kind of scale, because there's these venture capitals putting money in, investing in the company, they're expecting a return pretty quickly. They're expecting to be able to get the company or hoping rather hoping to get the company to a point where they'll be valued at a billion dollars uh, or they'll be able to float on the stock market. And they want that to happen in five years rather than 20 or 30 or 40. So SpeedX moving into the bike share industry with Blue Go-Go was their attempt to, to gain scale, uh, to, to ramp up the speed with which they were able to achieve the financial results that they were trying to get. Wow. And so in terms of the blowback and, you know, all the fallout as a result of their failure, how has that played for other companies in that space in Asia? Yeah, sure. Um, so Blue Go-Go were the first big one to fall. Um, and, and the fact that there was this Tiananmen Square and, and government scrutiny 
on them was was probably the factor that led to that downfall. But at around the same time that they went down, the Chinese government started regulating the industry a lot more closely. So there was, you've probably seen the pictures of, of bike share graveyards and just bikes yeah. dumped everywhere, like enormous piles of bikes. Uh, the streets were becoming cluttered and, and the Chinese government wanted to bring some regulation into the industry and that brought about the downfall of pretty much every other competitor. Mm. So as, as you mentioned in your last question, people are trying to be number one. And now in the industry in China, there's effectively just two players, Mobike and Ofo, and there's even talks about them merging and becoming one. So bike share is still, uh, still a big part of, of the Chinese landscape, um, but it's not any longer 40 different companies all with different colored bikes. It's, it's becoming a lot more homogenized. Mm, interesting. And do you think that their failure, uh, I mean, what beyond just, uh, it being, uh, a, a public failure and, uh, a, kind of an embarrassment, um, did it contribute market forces to those other companies collapsing? Uh, I think that, the failure of Blue Gogo probably signaled that there were there were bigger issues at play within the industry. So the fact that all of their suppliers were suddenly out of pocket when the company went bust they had, they had something like one hundred and fifty million dollars in debt when the oh. when the company went under. So seventy suppliers of theirs all owed amounts of money. Um, I, I think it's probably fairly easy or would have been fairly easy for other builders of other companies' bike share bikes to see the writing on the wall at that point. And mm-hmm. that, that would have been a factor, I think, that led to the decline of the industry more broadly. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that we see typically is when there's a bubble, uh, the first one who falls signals, okay, now the bubble has popped and that's when mm. the dominoes start falling. So yeah, absolutely. it sounds like this may reflect that to some degree. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, I, I knew that they had aimed high after the Speed X Leopard, um, but I hadn't realized that there was that kind of money at stake and their ultimate failure um, was that, uh, I don't want to say influential, but, but momentous in a way. Um, what a thing. Yeah, I, I think the, the one of the elements of the story that I found most interesting was that there's just this this vast human and environmental toll to that level of manufacturing that is probably a little bit uncomfortable for Western audiences to think about and to engage with because all of our stuff's made over there. We we probably don't think or want to think of the people making it as people with families and ambitions and hopes and dreams. But when something like SpeedX and Blue Go-Go collapsing when that happened that's 500 plus people out of a job that's mm-hmm. that's the the huge environmental implications of 800,000 of their bikes just being dumped it's it's just a immense collateral damage from from that one company failing and as i said that's that's just blue go go that's just speedex there were right. so many more right and and what about these suppliers? I mean, did any of the factories end up bellying up because of the incredible debt that had been incurred? Uh, I'm led to believe, although not um, not from anyone that's willing to go on the record, that one of the SpeedX suppliers was pretty close to going under as a result. Mm. Uh, and and I think that there were pretty substantial implications for many of them. Um, the one of one of the towns in China that sort of almost sprung up to service the demand for bike share that had seventy percent or something of the GDP dependent on bikes, about fifty percent of its workforce, and when when the factory suddenly went from manufacturing thousands and thousands of bikes a day to virtually nothing when the orders dried up, it's it's pretty easy to see that there would have been substantial impacts on on various factories and various people along the way right right big layoffs gosh yeah for sure wow uh ian 
This has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, we will certainly be including a link. Uh, I look forward to digging all the way through it. Um, and I've really enjoyed the time with you, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's nice to talk to you. Long time reader. Ah, uh, <laughs> thank you. Really appreciate it. Ah, no worries. Cheers. So that was Ian Trelore of Cycling Tips. Uh, I, I tell you, I would love to be in a situation working for a publisher where I could chase a story like that for as long as he did. <laughs> and I don't, you know, it's one of those things where there was a certain degree of investigative reporting that he did that I'm not even sure how he accomplished it. So pretty, pretty cool piece. But the thing that so surprises me is I tuned out at the point where I heard they're going to do bike share. Right, right. I completely lost track of the story. I lost interest, honestly. And the part that I find so surprising is that when they imploded, it popped the bubble for all of bike share in China. And now they're down to two companies. I mean, I, I wonder <laughs> if we're going to see something similar between Lime, you know, the scooters mm -hmm. and the bikes and all this here in the U.S. That's exactly what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. The it's, other piece. It's I'm crazy. Those images, yeah. like you're talking about those images of all those bikes that I don't know if people have seen them. It's I mean, I did, I had no idea all those dots were connected. So that. Yeah. To your point, that's an amazing story. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I paid no attention to the speed X. I knew nothing. I knew nothing. Barely registered. I got like one star on bike radar a few years ago and they're like, <laughs> ah, you know, and that was about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things about that bike, part of what sort of uh, fed my irritation uh, with them was that the bike design was actually problematic. Like uh, the the bottom bracket drop, not to go too technical, but this is a really great sort of canary in the coal mine moment. The bottom mm -hmm. bracket drop was six centimeters. That's a cyclocross bike. Right. Even even today, a lot of cyclocross bikes are lower. That's a cyclocross bike from the 1990s or 1980s. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a really, really high bottom bracket. And for a road bike, an allegedly aero road bike, it's just an awful design. It's not going to, the bike's not going to want to turn. Uh, it's going to feel skittish. You take it on a descent, you're going to think you're going to die. It's, so it was, you know, that was just one example of ways in which the design was really uh, not done by people who really know bikes. Right, right. Um, but, you know, the other question for me is, okay, so bike share imploded in China. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I hear these numbers, like Ian said, you know, uh, tens of thousands of bikes, but spread over what sort of area? Yeah, uh, you know, how how densely were these, you know, uh dockless bikes and the the dock stations? I don't know if we have any sort of analog for that here in the States. I mean, I have the sense that maybe there was a lot more than like what what, what I would see if I drove into San Francisco right now. Oh, I think so for sure. I think so for sure. If you look at some of those images and some of the features that have been done on that specifically, it's mind-boggling. It's yeah. mind-boggling. The, the numbers are mind boggling, but I do wonder, I mean, there was the whole, you know, line bike, they, they had, they were finding them like piled up in rivers and, and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know, like I was saying down in Tulsa, like who, how did these things get there? Like all of a sudden you look around and there's a pile of scooters somewhere. Where did they come from? Like literally a pile, like yep. literally a pile in an abandoned gas station lot, like just a mound of scooters, like. Does somebody come in in the night and just leave them? I'm I'm fascinated by this. Well, I remember reading with uh, one of the bike share companies that they had a crew of trucks that would go out and kind of overnight normalize the distribution of the bikes throughout a city so that hmm. you didn't end up with, uh, you know, at the end of the day, all of the bikes, you know, stuck at, at uh, you know, some port somewhere or something. Right. Um, but you know, who knows how well that's being done. Uh, Silicon Valley is uh, pretty, pretty great on great ideas and selling those ideas and getting them capitalized and not always really great on implementation. And well, we're seeing that. I mean, we're yeah. seeing that already. We're seeing that with a lot of these, you know, things are coming and going very quickly. Yeah. You know, Lime's in, Lime's out, Ford is in, Ford is out. Like it, it, we've, 
very quickly, like even I think even more rapid turnaround than usual on this kind of stuff. It's a, it's a really strange space right now. Yeah. Yeah. Not one I would want to be playing in, especially when everybody's looking at the possibility of, oh, maybe we do e-bikes for bike share. And suddenly the value of each bike, you know, doubles or triples. I mean, that's huge yeah. capital. Yeah, it is. I don't know. It's, I don't know. I don't have any answers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that takes somebody who's really comfortable playing high stakes poker. Yeah. Well, and, and that you are talking about people with that kind of monopoly money. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, we will have a link uh, to Ian's piece in our show notes so people can check okay, it out cool. for themselves. Um, yeah, I haven't I read it yet, so I definitely will. It's a, it's a, a set aside some time. <laughs> yeah, got it. Got it. That's cool, though. To your point, I mean, that's cool. Like to, to do that kind of a, a really interesting investigative piece on a story like that isn't I, f- I find that. That's yeah. pretty fascinating. Well, and, and cheers to cycling tips for giving the guy the leash to do so. Right. Yeah. I agree with that too. Yeah. So, uh, pace line picks. Sure thing. Cool. So yeah, mine is, mine is kind of a, a little quirky one, but so the last <laughs> time I did, uh, I did D2R2. I came across this guy, D2R2 for those who don't know is a kind of a, a mysterious ride in, in Western Massachusetts that, People often go off course and get get lost in all sorts of ways, but less so now with devices. This was a couple of years ago when people didn't all have the GPX files. But anyway, so I came across this guy on the side of the road, seemingly no mechanical trouble, holding his cue sheet, but just standing there looking kind of helpless nonetheless. You know, just like cue sheet in hand, but not examining it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not actually like, looking at it. Right, exactly. He looked he looked troubled in a weird way. So I stopped, I turned around, and he was indeed off course, but he couldn't actually read his cue sheet because he had forgotten to take his reading glasses. Or actually, not forgotten, he didn't bother bringing his reading glasses, though he grabbed a cue sheet. Uh yeah. So a very similar funny, though a very similar thing happened to me more recently. With one of my usual riding buddies who we were on one of his routes and he got lost and he didn't bring his reader. So he actually couldn't even read his Jeep, his computer, his cycling computer like that. I was like, seriously, is this happening right now? Um, So it made me think of this little product that I got sent a, a few months ago from a PR person called Thin Optics. And what it is, is basically a little pair of polycarbonate folding reading glasses. Uh, that slips inside a little pouch. It's like a little, it's literally not thicker than a, than a poker hand of cards and about half the width. And the the little glasses slip into there. It's super light. And I'm like, these people should just keep one of those in their saddlebags. And that's actually what the the company is recommending that you can Mm -hmm. throw them in your glove Mm -hmm. compartment. You know, they're 30 bucks, like put them places where if you don't, if you can't read, you might be in trouble. And I think that, you know, a bicycle might fall into that category if, if no, you try no, if you're somewhere where you all. don't know at all where you are. <laughs> so yeah, I mean I, I have they sent me this pair and they're kind of funky. They just they don't have arms or anything. They're just like they sit on the perch of your nose, right? And it's uh-huh. just the but you can read with them. You know, if you need them to read, they are there for you. So that is that is my pick this week. I I, I would happily check them out. I've got some that I generally just keep in the pocket of my pants, jeans, whatever I'm wearing, uh, they fold up. Uh, so the frame folds in half and then mm-hmm. the, uh, the earpieces are telescoping. They've got three sections. So they fold oh, down. Okay. Okay. So the, the arms end up being no longer than the length of a lens. And so okay. the whole thing folds up into something. Yeah. Roughly half the size of a deck of cards. I'd say maybe a little thicker, maybe a little bit shorter. Um, and maybe slightly more than half the width of a deck of cards, small enough to fit in a, in pants pockets, uh, with no problem. And yeah, those things are lifesavers. Uh, it, it's one of the reasons that I've become so devoted to the Wahoo element though, is you can mm. always blow the numbers up. So uh, easily, so easily you just yeah. push that button and all of a sudden the thing, you can see it from space. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, I mean, they're, you know, GPS units from Cy- uh, Cyclops, 
and uh, and Lazine and some of the others. They're awesome units, but invariably there's a number on there that I would really like to ascertain, and I can't. I you know? yeah, and I don't I don't have uh, reading glasses, but that I love Lazine as a company as a whole, but I have a very hard time reading their units. I there's something about the font that they choose and the readability that I, I do. I think that that's an over. I think in a lot of any product that is engineered by engineers, sometimes that kind of stuff falls through the, the wayside. You know what I mean? Like you see that happening in products across the spectrum. But it's like, yeah, hmm, this is very engineered, but somebody else needs to step in and give yeah. some advice. Yeah. 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 Uh, but those those glasses sound really cool. Uh, I, I will have to follow the link myself and take a look. Yeah, no, and they are. They and they're very durable, so you could totally just slip them into a saddlebag and forget about them with your tube. Like there would be that would you could totally do that. That's cool. Uh yeah, polycarbonate. Yeah. That that's yeah. Uh that is going to be durable. Yeah. Cool. So, Ghost, what do you have? Yeah. Well, this time of year, I do lots of rides and some events that start cool but warm up through the day. Dressing properly for a 30 degree temperature swing over the course of a ride. Uh, it's not easy. <laughs> no, it's uh, not. <laughs> and, and I tell you, since moving to Sonoma County, there have been so many days where I've gotten it wrong, where I've thought, well, the weather report says it's not going to get above 65. And suddenly I get to some clearing at the top of a climb and it's 80 degrees. And I've got a long sleeve tech wool jersey <laughs> on. And it's like, yep. Hmm. Uh, well, it's a good thing I don't have any scissors because I'd cut the sleeves off right now, you know, and ruin <laughs> the jersey. Last fall, I ran across a tech wool base layer from Mission Workshop, the company that's better known for bags and whatnot, uh, which was a real surprise to me. I wasn't expecting them to be doing great technical wear for on the bike, you know, under Lycra, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. It just, it was such a surprise. The pieces of blend, so it has lots of stretch but it still retains its shape and it is nearly the weight of a winter Jersey, not like an insulated one, but just it's, it's a a substantive weight. Hmm. Um, And the best of all, the best part of all that, what I like about it is it, it, because it's wool, it doesn't get hot on a hot day. It's a crew neck. It's got short sleeves. The torso is woven in one seamless tube. So there are no seams on there to start rubbing or anything like that. Very, very comfortable. It's $95, so not exactly cheap, but given how many $40 and $50 base layers are out there that are just kind of okay, I think this one's really worth the money. And like I say, for those days where we get huge temperature swings, it's kind of my go-to now. I just I know that I'm going to be good with it. It's short sleeve? Yes. It's short sleeve. And... You don't, you do not get hot in it. I do not get hot in it. So if I'm, if I'm anticipating that as I roll out when it's 50, 55 degrees, and it's probably going to hit 80, 85, you know, I might have arm warmers on that base layer, my Jersey, and just know that I'm going to be able to pull the arm warmers off later and I'm not going to die. I will have to trust you. It sounds, it sounds, very, it's, it's, it sounds very warm to me. I, I have a, I, as much as I want to love wool and wool products, I, I, I must be really sensitive because even Merino wool kind of bugs me. Like there's just a, a, a fabric itch factor that it just, I'm, it's very, I'm very hard pressed to find wool that I really like. So I have this some, is a tech wool. It doesn't have that itch factor the way, uh, like a traditional Merino base layer would or a traditional okay. Merino uh, okay. w- Jersey would. Um, okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got a different sort of feel to it. Think, okay. Think something closer to like a Rafa Jersey. That makes more sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, gotcha. So itch, itch is not a thing with this. Cause even but, with Merino wool, they say, but mm, I still sometimes run into issues with it. Right. Well, the bottom line there is that not all Merino is created equal. So some, some, some Merino itches less than other Merino. Um, I've, I've certainly run across Merino that it's like, no, no, that did not pass the mustard. Uh, right. And others that it's like, my gosh, can I just swaddle my entire body in this? So, 
it's not, it's not all the same. That's for sure. Um, but okay. this, yeah. Um, I've been wearing it at, you know, it's funny. There was a long period during the winter where I'd look at it kind of longingly, like I can't wait to use this again and think, but I need long sleeves right now. <laughs> can, can I ask kind of a smart ass question? <laughs> Please. <laughs> why, why not just wear a vest? Uh, well, I mean, the first, first thing for me is if I can dress in a way that's going to keep me comfortable and I don't have to take something off and shove it okay. in the pocket. Okay. That's, that's kind of my go-to. Right. Um, that makes sense. But I mean, certainly there are days I've, I've encountered days where it's been 40 degrees at the start. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had knee warmers, a vest, a good base layer, the Jersey arm warmers, and then it hits 75, maybe 80 degrees. And I, you yep. know, I'm running out of pocket space. Yeah, no, for sure. I've, I've been there too. It's, it's, it's really hard to dress for those days. Really hard to dress for those yeah. days. And a lot yeah. of these events are like that. They start, it could be even 30 degrees, right? They start at 7 a.m. or something and the temperature mm-hmm. change can be enormous. Yeah. I, yeah. I love, I love events where they let you drop your stuff. That's my favorite where they have like a midway point where you can just dump all those layers that are stuffed in everyone's pockets. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. that's a pretty wonderful service. Uh, and you know, when you encounter something like that, certainly it gives you more opportunity to think about, well, what would I like to do to be comfortable early in the day rather than, well, what can I make do without? Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's intriguing. I mean, I'll look into it just because I, I also face that often throughout my, like actually the whole year, you know, except for <laughs> the extreme seasons. So cool. Yeah. Nito. Well, what are you up to this weekend? Uh, oh, vacation. Right. But, vacation. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm leaving on uh, Saturday. Very so, cool. It'll be uh, fun. Yeah. I, that's not an area of Oregon where I've done any riding yet. So I will, I think maybe yeah. you're going to need to do a poll about your vacation. I agree. I agree. See what I, cause I, can I, I get am, an amen from the listeners? Amen. <laughs> Yeah, no, I will for sure. I'm really excited. Yeah. Ah, Nito. Uh, oh, do- you have a grasshopper. My last one of the season. Yeah. 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 Uh, and this one, How are you feeling? it's in, you know, pretty good. Did a ride this morning, the ride with the ticks. Um, you know, we, we, all, <laughs> <laughs> we all got on well. <laughs> um, but my, my legs felt good. I did a, the first sort of hardish ride uh, since Dirty Kanza last Sunday, and mm-hmm. I was doing fine until I don't know half a kilometer into the final climb, and then just parts started falling off of me. I was I was done, and when I rode on Tuesday, I could tell my legs were still tired, and so I've just been trying to take it easy as I as I come back. I think I'm going to be ready for Saturday. Uh, I'm telling myself I'm going to be ready for Saturday. It's going to be interesting. Uh, 80 some miles. And it's, it's going to be almost a hundred percent dirt. It'll be in Jackson state forest up in Mendocino. And I think that I'm within my rights to say there's never been an event of this sort in Mendocino County, uh, especially that area, Jackson state forest. This thing is going to be one for the books. This is the sort of event where somebody who's been thinking about visiting Northern California to do a gravel event mm-hmm. would do well to think about doing this one. Cause the, the weather will be nice. It'll start cool. Uh, I, I mean, this is one of those where I'm, I'm packing the entire kitchen sink, mm-hmm. uh, because I'm not sure what the morning's going to be. The mission workshop base layer will be with me. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited. It'll be a fun time. Cool. All righty. Well, uh, as evidenced by our question today, keep those questions coming. You all have been sending some great stuff. If you've got an idea, please drop by RKP and put a suggestion in the comments. Before we go, I'd like to put in a plug for RKP's other podcast, The Pull. The show features artisans talking about their craft in one-on-one interviews. Think Terry Gross for cyclists. This week's show, yes, the show is back. Yay, finally, I had some time. <laughs> It's part two of my interview with Paul Sadoff, which just has some real gems of moments in there. Uh, I'm, I'm super pleased with that interview. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, 
Please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with Celine Yeager. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.